0: Yes, today is Matthias Goldman and we have so many things we want to talk to Matthias about that it's a bit overwhelming actually. We could talk about legal challenges to ECB monetary policy or Argentina or hidden loans in Mozambique and hopefully we're going to get to some of those topics, especially Mozambique today. But um Where we want to start is with a discussion of colonialism and genocide and attempts to use the court system to right historical wrongs. Uh, In in our sovereign debt class this semester, Me Too and I have been talking a lot about the Haitian independence debt to to France. And we wanted to ask Matthias about a, a subject that he has written about both as a, an academic and as a, an expert witness, which has to do with the legacy of German colonialism in present-day Namibia, the, the former colony of German Southwest Africa. A group of, of plaintiffs, descendants of the Ova and Nama peoples, filed a lawsuit in the Southern District of New York seeking compensation for the loss of property, for being subjected to forced labor and ultimately for the deaths of of tens of thousands of people. And we wanted to use this ultimately unsuccessful lawsuit as a way of thinking about these contemporary legal challenges for historical injustices. And so we're really thrilled, Matthias, that that you um, could join us. So thank you. Thank you so much for being here.
1: It's my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me.
0: I wonder if we could start with a little background, if you could tell us a bit about these claims and and their, their history, if you will.
1: So it all goes back to the first genocide of the century, of the 20th century, that took place from 1904 to 1907 in what was then German Southwest Africa and what is today the territory of Namibia. Now, Germany had been a colonial power in the area since the 1880s. And uh, how did that genocide occur? Well, it as is so often the case, it wasn't really a planned event, but it occurred as a combination of a situation that became worse and worse for the indigenous people. Germany claimed more and more land, and land is the primary resource in southwest Africa and also very scarce one. And then several contributing factors added to it. Uh, it ultimately broke out in January 1904, at the moment when many people and many leaders in Southwest Africa thought that the contracts they had concluded or the treaties, if you so want, they had concluded with the German uh, powers weren't, weren't to their favor. And that Germany was encroaching upon their territory, upon their cattle, upon their riches more and more. And that these treaties were ultimately unequal and were only partially respected by Germany. And that Germany, uh, show, had shown its aggressive uh, face, so to say, and it, you know, then it, it all uh, escalated relatively quickly from a few local incidents into a major war involving, first of all, the Herero population in central Namibia, or what is today central and eastern Namibia, uh, which uh, culminated in uh, later in 1904. In a uh, battle of the Butterberg, where Germany uh, closed off any refuge and basically drove uh, the Herero into the desert, leaving them without any water. And that whole, was, that whole action was based on an uh, order by Lothar von Tota, the governing general at the time, who said that Germany would uh, basically eliminate the, um, uh, the Herero people. And then it continued with the Nama, with actions against the Nama, which is another group in Southwest Africa that uh, uh, lived in in a more dispersed way. And that came a kind of a a partisan war that lasted until 1907. But with equal results, the the remaining surviving Heroro and Nama were imprisoned in concentration camps that were designed to bring death to many of them, or uh, either by very very hard labor or by abysmal living conditions. so that was the setting and estimates are that uh, tens of thousands well be well uh, above fifty thousand people died in that uh, in that confrontation some estimates say that up to a hundred thousand people died
0: and and if I can um ask to, to sort of shift time frames a, a little bit towards the present. There have been discussions about reparations, and negotiations. I think even mm-hmm. a, at least one offer made, uh, all of this sort of maybe before, maybe during the lawsuit. what, what is the, the status of the discussions about reparations?
1: Since independence, which Namibia reached in 1990, Namibia has sought, or Namibians from the affected groups have sought to gain compensation, to get compensation. Now, these groups are really continuous. That means that today in Namibia there live people who are the direct ancestors of people affected and they're still affected or of victims and they're still affected by the genocide even today because they haven't gotten back their ancestral lands yet. And that really gave them a cause to seek reparation. Germany has been in denial officially of any responsibility up until about five, six years ago when first the president of the parliament and then ultimately the government recognized that at least on a moral level, they avoid legal terminology, but on a moral level, that was an inacceptable event. And even that genocide you're using the term genocide now, and then that gave them a reason to enter into negotiations with the Namibian government. Now, the problem here is that the Namibian government and the representatives or and large parts of the Herora and Nama are not really from the same political party. Namibia used to be a one party political system as we have it very often in a post-colonial context in Africa, and uh, that has changed. Meanwhile, politics in Namibia are uh, very much uh, a question of ethnicity or groups are structured along ethnic lines and that of course creates tensions between the government of Namibia which is involved in the negotiations with Germany on the one hand and the groups affected on the other hand and the fear is and there's actually also some precedent that uh, on which this fear is based the fear is that the Namib- Namibian government will simply not pass on all the money or that any negotiation between Germany and the Namibian government which does not substantially involve the groups affected will not be uh, to their sole advantage. And uh, for that reason, I think it's in that context that we need to see the suit that they filed in New York. It was an attempt to shift negotiations more towards them and to shift attention, both the public attention, but also the attention of the negotiations to the actual victims and their their, uh, modern relatives.
2: So Matthias, uh, this is fascinating. So I just want to, to ask a, a little clarification, if you may. So you know, when Mark and I teach our sovereign debt class, and I imagine this is similar for when you are teaching this topic, uh, we talk about how sovereigns are infinitely lived, and so a claim, a historical claim about something like genocide, a historical wrong, you know, the sovereigns in question, Germany and Namibia are, are uh, in existence today and their predecessors were in existence a century ago and uh, some version of them uh, are in existence today. So the, 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 the entities, at least one crucial entity, Germany, is still here today and so, as a theoretical matter, it seems ideal that you would have the sovereigns make the claims against each other. But one of the big problems here seems to be that the sovereigns at that time uh, no longer are sovereigns today. Am I? And so therefore, one has to think in terms of individual claimants who suffered wrongs Which then becomes a much more complicated question, particularly if you're going to try to litigate uh, in the US courts for an extraterritorial wrong. Am I sort of understanding the basics of why this is so complicated? This is absolutely the case.
1: So here we see it really in a nutshell how our understanding of claims has shifted or is about to shift, at least in some parts, and I'm not sure how universally shared this is, but you know, um, in the aftermath of the Second World War, which for many things provides a blueprint here, and even also in the aftermath of the First World War, it was no question that the government could represent all its citizens and claim reparations on their behalf, and then distribute these funds as it deemed fit, as it deemed best, this is no longer The case in our modern understanding, I think it has a lot to do with the rise of human rights law with the rise of international criminal adjudication to some extent that we see claims in a much more individualized way nowadays and the legal manifestation, the the clearest legal manifestation of that is the UN declaration on the rights of indigenous people of 2007, which also provides. Procedures for states, which they should follow when they are negotiating the claims of individuals or of, of actually of, of um, indigenous groups. You can describe both the Herero and the Nama as indigenous groups. They have got a constitutional status as such under Namibia's law law today. And the 2007 declaration says that you know in any negotiations concerning their rights and uh, and 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 uh, privileges or or um, claims, they should be involved. So, and it, hence the complication, right? We can't really treat this as an interstate manner any longer.
0: And yet, it seems that the so, in a perfect world, the rules governing the right of individuals to seek compensation would kind of evolve swiftly to catch up and. and It seems like that hasn't really happened. So one of the frustrating things I think for many observers about the lawsuit and there have been other examples recently. So the the Federal Republic of Germany versus Philip case and the Simon versus Hungary case in the United States but all of these cases arising out of genocide are framed in US courts as cases involving expropriation, and the uh, sort of the reasons for that are kind of technical. They relate to the exceptions in the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act, but there have been um, a series of decisions, both in the lawsuit we're talking about now and in these other cases, sort of narrowing the that expropriation exception. And so I'm wondering, Matthias, if you could. Um, just give us a, a little insight into the way the New York federal courts treated the lawsuit brought by the descendants of the Herrero and Nama people. But also if you can give us a sense of like, is this door closed? Are Are the US courts mm-hmm. now more or less permanently shut mm-hmm. to this kind of claim or is there still some room there?
1: Mm-hmm. So I think the surprising thing to notice about all these cases that you mentioned is that the store seemed to be open at some point, at least. And I I think that generally this is a good signal because we're talking here about structural asymmetries. For the NAMA or the Herero to claim compensation before, uh, to to get compensation in a political way is relatively difficult. As I said, the negotiations don't really involve them and uh, you one thing that i might add is that there is a high level of dependence of the Nibi- namibian government on germany so germany is the uh, is the provides the most uh, budgetary aid to namibia, namibia which is a bit an antique kind of development assistance but germany is actually providing budgetary contributions to the namibian budget so that makes the government highly dependent and that means from a victim's perspective uh, your chances to get fair compensation in political ways seems to be limited. Nevertheless, still we're talking today not about whether there should be compensation or not, but we're talking about whether there should be, uh, whether there's a legal right and whether there's a court. And that as such is already a good sign. And I think it's a necessary uh, sign given the structural asymmetries which we face here. Nevertheless, there is this huge gap between claims, between commercial claims on the one hand, where you've got the commercial exception the commercial activity exception from immunities, including in the FSIA, it's recognized there. And uh, there's the um, takings of property exception on the one hand, and on the other hand, exceptions for human rights related claims are much more limited. So there's this huge uh, gap which we can't really bridge which is is a huge contradiction i would say and uh, it, it that is it, it, it that has really widened that gap i would say in as a consequence of all these cases it seems that us courts and especially the US Supreme Court has given clear indications that they're unwilling to treat these matters these past injustices and that uh, that would be left to other uh, to other countries or to other uh, jurisdictional fora to be solved. That 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 is a little bit of a pity. And I, uh, while there are many good reasons, many policy reasons that uh, one could think of why the Supreme Court is taking the position it has taken in uh, the Herrera case and in the Philip case that you're mentioning, I think it's hard to bridge that policy with. Behavior of U.S. courts in other respects. So, uh, for example, the U.S. is a great participant and a um, even um, an engine in in the global practice of commercial forum shopping. Companies that swiftly shift, you know, change their jurisdiction for the sole reason of uh, forum shopping because in in another jurisdiction they might be able to benefit from a investment protection treaty. The United States is Uh, taking a very, uh, I would say, extensive view of domestic jurisdiction if it comes to sanctions. In the case of sanctions, the mere fact that funds are funneled through U.S. banks is sufficient in order to apply sanctions to foreign companies that engage, for example, in trade with Iran. We've got tons of problems with that that exuberant jurisdiction of the United States at the moment in some areas. In the human rights field, they're just closing it down. So I'm just observing that that there is a policy inconsistency, maybe on the part of the US judiciary as a whole and the Supreme Court in particular. And what are the reasons why they're doing so? Well, the reasons are mostly historical. They consider the expropriation exception as a rather narrow reason that was you know, basically established in order to benefit U.S. investors that had been expropriated in newly independent countries in the 1960s that went about nationalizing parts of their economy, and uh, the United States wanted to keep a court avenue open for them, uh, even where, uh, you know, international law normally would have Immunized these countries from any suit, and so they're going back to this and said, you know, it's, it's really limited that kind of international investments and and uh, any uh, direct claims deriving from that. And let's let's keep it there. Let's keep it at bay. Let's not let that develop into a general human rights exception. So this is somehow in parallel to what happened to the to the Alien Tort Claims statute in the Kiyobell case and other cases. Before that, they are limiting their uh, uh, potential or their their willingness to enforce international
2: human rights. So, Matthias, I'm so glad that you brought up this sort of inconsistency, or you were too polite and you didn't call it hypocrisy in terms of the applic the extraterritorial application of U.S. law and the willingness of the US executive branch and the US courts to go overseas because in the human rights context, the US courts seem to say, no, we're not going to be the policemen for the world to right all these wrongs. Whereas when it comes to a number of other matters that really benefit US investors, or involve regulating things that the U.S. uh, executive branch cares a lot about, they're willing to go quite far. But Mm. I mean, hypocrisy in the behavior of a Western power like the U.S. should not surprise us. That's what history teaches us would happen. But here's my next question, which is in the case of the Herrero, for example. I mean, why not the European courts, which seem to me from an outsider's uh, perspective, much more progressive? And why not specifically Germany that as a historical matter uh, since World War II has, been much more receptive to reparations claims, even though, you know, when you started out, you said, you know, they're willing to acknowledge a moral wrong, Uh, they won't acknowledge a legal wrong, but still in comparison, for example, to the Belgians in Congo, or the French in Haiti. I mean, the Germans seem uh, miles and miles ahead of anybody else in terms of at least willing to talk. And given that, significant portions of the, pla- of the land in question and the people in question were German subjects at the time of the genocide. Why not use German courts, given that, I mean, it just seems like the German government and the German people are, are much more willing to uh, be sympathetic to these claims. That is a good question that uh, deserves
1: an answer on several levels. Now, first of all, why did that case make it to the to the s courts in the first place? I think that was based on the experience with forced labor. Um, the uh, lawyer representing the Herrero in u s. courts is the same, and he did the excellent job of using a case in the u s. court to pressurize the German government into a deal, a relatively generous deal that uh, provided compensation for people that were you know not directly victims of the, the genocide or of the Holocaust but victims of forced labor under the Nazi, under the Nazi dictatorship and that was an excellent uh, historical precedent. The problem is a little bit that the jurisdictional basis in the case of the um, forced laborers was clearer so you had a clear you know violation of rules of the international labor organization that were in place at the time already and you had survivors that still lived there. And uh, so so that was, uh, uh, that provided more solid legal basis. But that's the, so to say, the trivial reason why that court ended up in in, in, in the United States. Whether it should end up in Europe or not, especially in Germany, I'm not so sure. I think now after having complained about, as you say, hypocrisy, or I say, inconsistency of yes courts, I think the hypocrisy and inconsistency in Germany is even greater. I think the United States still stands out as, uh, you know, a shining example of the rule of law. If it comes to fairness, judicial fairness, uh, in 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 that respect, and why is that so? Now, Germany has paid a lot of reparations, or as we say, um, indemnities. So to say, there is a distinction between reparations in the sense of international legal reparations and the indemnity that was paid to uh, victims of the Holocaust, it has paid a lot in that. Respect if it has been fairly distributed or not, and if every group has uh, received their fair share is a different question, but it showed some you know willingness to to. um, uh, strike a new page to open a a new chapter in that regard that is certainly clear, but apart from that. We've got a huge problem in confronting German crimes abroad, whether pre-Nazi past or after-Nazi past. So the point about Germany's approach to its past, and that includes, unfortunately, our courts, is really, you know, the Nazi era was really, really, really bad. But what happened before is kind of, you know, um, not that bad or not worse than what happened in other countries. So we don't really have to worry about it. And what happens today? Uh, is also fine. So because we uh, did a good job in compensating Nazi victims, we now think that we don't have to do uh, just as exceptional a job in uh, compensating other victims. And uh, just recently, a couple of months ago, our constitutional court rendered a judgment that denied compensation to victims of an attack in Afghanistan occurring in, I think, 2009 in Kunduz, where many people died from a clearly excessive plane attack or bomb attack carried out by a German uh, air fighter. And uh, that was, I I think, clearly in violation of international humanitarian law. And Germany is absolutely unwilling to go there to any length. And so does it do with respect to to, um, the genocide. So it took Germany a long, uh, to, uh, to the Herero and Nama genocide. It took Germany a long time to recognize that as an act of injustice whether moral or legal and it's still absolutely in uh, denial about the severity of its colonial past and also the continuity of that colonial past until this day including in questions of you know racial injustice etc so germany is having a very yeah uh, Confronted a very polarized public debate at the moment, where uh, large parts of the conservative, but also the central political spectrum, uh, think that you know the Nazi period is really exceptional and should be um, should be settled by paying compensation, but the rest of our history is not. And others who point out that there is continuity, that concentration camps existed in uh, South Africa as they did later in. In, in Germany and in um, in in Poland and the Czech Republic, etc., and uh, that you know we've got various shades of grey here. And if we say yes to compensation in case of the Nazi, we should do exactly the same in in case of the genocide. But it's it's a it's a very very uh, uh, polarized uh, uh, public debate at the moment, and it's unclear what will be the result. Last point: if you want to look at better examples. Of dealing with one's past, I would say, with some qualifications, that the United Kingdom provide an example which paid compensation to victims of Kenyan in, uh, to Kenyan victims of colonial violence. The facts relate to the 1950s. In that case, that was in 2012. Or France, again, has proven uh, over, uh, again and again the that they have a more global perspective and that they are more willing to tackle past injustices, even. Though now most recently President Macron has um, shown some uh, reticence, he's, uh, you know, he's approaching another election and obviously uh, he doesn't want to provide additional uh, munition for the campaign of the extreme right here. But uh, on the whole, I think that Germany has done a, a very hypocritical uh, approach here or has followed a very hypocritical concept of adjudication.
0: Well, Matthias, let's take a short break. And when we come back, maybe we can switch gears and talk a bit about the uh, the hidden debts in Mozambique. So let's take just a couple of minutes.
2: So Matthias, if, if you would indulge us, we would like to turn now to another area in which you have done wonderful and important work sort of combining both your academic interests with what I see as your activist interests, although maybe you wouldn't characterize it this way, which is your work in helping both uncover the so-called hidden loans in Mozambique, but also helping uh, progressive organizations in thinking about how to help uh, Mozambique recover on these. So uh, just as a little background and also try to making the the connection to these colonial uh, linkages that we talked about in the first half, the, the way I came to get to know this is I was teaching a course in Portugal with our dear friend Lee Bukait at Catholica in Lisbon. And uh, I was probably talking about how emerging market countries uh, can benefit by borrowing on the international markets and then investing in infrastructure. And I had these students in the class uh, who were from Mozambique on scholarship in Portugal because partly because of the colonial linkages And they responded with some degree of skepticism. Uh, They were very polite, but I think there was a degree of hostility too, which was, look, that's just the US investor perspective that you're parroting. We in Mozambique just issued our first sovereign bonds uh, or sovereign debt issuances. And uh, they were supposed to buy us all of these boats that would fish for tuna and these other boats that would police our waters and uh, we can look out of our windows and just see a bunch of useless rusty boats in the water that do absolutely nothing and uh, foreign uh, lending to our country has been nothing but an unmitigated disaster and so that's actually how I started reading some of your work about Mozambique and uh, I'd love it if you would uh, give us some background we've talked a little bit about this with the wonderful Joseph Coderil, but you bring a completely different perspective. So if you could set up the story for us as what happened in Mozambique, then we'll grill you further about uh, what's going on right now.
1: Yeah, what happened in Mozambique, I think indeed, as you say, that there is a connection with the Nibian case without uh, overstretching that. Both cases show somehow the weaknesses of the post-colonial states or problems inherent in the post-colonial state. That means that in, in neither in Namibia nor in, in Mozambique, you've got a full a distinction between the economy and politics. The economy and politics are too closely related and uh, political power is a requisite for economic power and for gaining money. So you don't get rich by founding Google or Apple, or but you get you get rich by becoming president or a minister or at least a member of parliament. And one of the ways of doing so is of course corruption. And now this brings us to the case of Mozambique. So the trouble starts in 2010 when gas is discovered in the coast in front of um, uh, Mozambique within its exclusive economic zone. And then the question was how to exploit that. So there was on the one hand a legitimate interest in exploiting that. On the other hand, the government of Mozambique, which is like in Namibia, um, one a single party government that uh, evolved from the civil victorious from the civil war, uh, that government had a had a number of issues with you know looming conflicts in certain parts of the country. So they wanted also to get. Uh, uh, you know it, 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 to, to upscale their their military defense and also then of course one of the reasons was fear greed why they wanted to you know to get foreign loans and so so the plan was made let's have three state-owned enterprises set them up. one of them would be the coast guard. that's how we uh, equip our army with the latest boats etc. One of them would be for tuna fishing and one of them would be for exploring, natural gas and uh, all of that was surprisingly kept secret and all of that was uh, managed or was, was um, uh, in- inspired and organized by a Lebanese company called Pro Indicus and uh, all of that was financed by loans, secret loans from Credit Suisse and from a Russian bank called VTB. Credit Suisse and VTB provided funds to state-owned enterprises and now you can expect that they didn't do so without guarantees by the government of Mozambique, extended for these loans by the government uh, of Mozambique. And now all of that occurred with enormous or involved enormous levels of corruption to the extent that you could say that uh, it almost seemed as a, a scheme that was just about corruption and not so much about uh, developing uh, Mozambique's natural resources. So the amounts, so we're talking here about around a volume of credit of around 2 billion altogether, all the three loans together. And the amount of that that went to corruption is at least $200 million, if not even more. and. Um, even the amount of money that did not go into corruption just was spent on useless equipment, as your students say. There is a lot of super modern ships uh, in in the harbor of Maputo. You can see them today. I even saw them myself, and uh, they're useless because no one really, no, no, no one in the country really knows how to use them. There's no infrastructure for. Using them because you can just not, you know, um, use a boat itself for for fishing, etc. You also have to have other equipment, or for coast guards, you also have to have, uh, you know, installations on the country on the shore uh, in order to to command them and, and control them, etc. And that all is non-existent. So it's only a a partial investment that was overpriced on top of it, and that has remained totally useless. And even the gas exploration has. Taking a dip as it becomes apparent that looming conflicts make it impossible to get to cash relatively fast. So it's uh, on the one hand a typical problem on uh, of uh, post-colonial states that government contracts involve a lot of corruption. On the other hand, the level. Uh, and and the you know the just the level of corruption is exceptional I think in this case there is one hardly it's 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 barely concealed that the whole scheme was set up to fill the coffers of uh, members of the government, uh, including members that are very close to the former and even the uh, today's president the the current president so that's the basic setup and then. Uh, it, it all came out in 2016 when Credit Suisse felt that it would be problematic to keep these loans on its books, and it, restru- it, it sold them off as bonds. One of the loans, actually. It, it transformed it, it restructured it, it, it securitized it basically into bonds and sold the bonds, and the bonds had a prospectus. And that prospectus, of course, had to be legit and had to correspond to to uh, the applicable standards in London, so to EU regulations at the time, and uh, there was some sp- suspicious language in the uh, prospectus, and that you know generated questions. And from then on, it came out that the loan uh, was basically um, non-performing, and then it had that it had been invested without any proper business plan, and would never bear fruits. And uh, once. And that was set in motion then it came uh, it quickly uh, developed that there were two other loans that also had uh, a similar profile and would never really pay off
0: and Matthias, uh, I suspect we're going to get into the um, legal challenges to the enforceability of at least some of these loans but i'm I'm hoping if I can interject for just a second to ask a somewhat broader question the of the degree of corruption which you you highlight, to my mind, kind of complicates the question of how we should think about the problem here. So one way of thinking about the problem is it's a a problem of weak institutions and bad people, and thus um, mostly a problem within the borrower country itself. Of course, another way of thinking about the problem, and I know you've written some about this, is that the world is awash in capital looking for a home and looking for uh, some kind of yield in a very low yield environment, and so you have a massive demand for loans by investors who are not particularly concerned about the provenance of the loans. Um, so, is this a is this a borrower side problem, an investor side problem? Is it both? Where where do we look to to fix? The problem
1: well it's of course both thank you thank you for that question that's absolutely justified to it shouldn't be a one-sided story here so there are problems at the level of the post-colonial state but at the, at the same time the post-colonial state as mozambique uh, is one is an easy victim of uh, capital inflows so there's an oversupply of funds which is not the first time to occur. Similar things occurred at the time of the so-called petrodollars in the 1970s, which then triggered this enormous debt crisis of the developing world in the 1980s and 1990s, just because funds were given for you know, projects that don't necessarily materialize. So development is a very uh, uh, treacherous process. It can Many things can go wrong, and there's no guarantee for it and if you are under strained financial conditions in order to finance or uh, which finance your development then sovereign debt or sovereign default is almost unavoidable Uh, you could even go further back to the 19th century where we have parallel uh, things in Egypt so when Egypt built the Suez Canal and and many other uh, developmental projects towards the end of the or since the 1860s it also got a lot of funds from borrowers from uh, Western countries and uh, you know, of course uh, things don't work out always precisely as, uh, as you want and there is also a lack of experience etc and then you end up in this enormous sovereign debt and in that case Egypt had to basically give up its sovereignty and uh, pass it on to the uh, Egypt Debt Commission and uh, so, so we have a repeating sheen here of money from capital exporting countries flowing into uh, developing countries, there's an exact, ex- exaggeration of expectations. There is a long-term investment that only will pay off in decades probably, but interests have to be paid, uh, paid instantly. So you, you've got this huge financing gap. And of course, there's a structural uh, problem in uh, on the part of lenders and on the, probably also on the part of Uh, capital markets regulation in the
2: West. So Matthias, um, to get to the sort of the practicalities and in part uh, your work with a number of the NGOs, uh, there have been, my understanding is that there have been a number of uh, lawsuits filed, or maybe it's only one in British courts because these debts were under English law. Uh, trying to recover uh, from Credit Suisse at least. Uh, And my understanding also is that, you know, Credit Suisse internally has done a lot of soul searching about its uh, misbehavior in recent years. I think they were in the news uh, recently again for some other uh, disaster. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit about uh, the progress of those lawsuits and also about how the government's own complicity or at least the complicity of members of the elite in Mozambique has played out in in terms of its willingness to investigate this because my understanding is that but for NGO pressure the Mozambique government itself, despite the change in administration that took place, really wanted to sweep this under the rug. And, um, but the, the NGOs that did not allow that to happen. But uh, my cynical self says, you know, energy from the NGOs to keep beating the drum is always limited and eventually the corrupt government wins out and the people of Mozambique Get screwed. Well, it could be you're right. I think this is a fantastic example for
1: what you just described. So, what happened is that indeed Mozambique tried to uh, uh, shove this under the rug uh, because so many people in government were complicit in it. So, they restructured, they tried to to, um, ratify the bonds ex post, or at least uh, the first bond that came known by a parliamentary resolution later the constitutional council said that this was not valid and uh, then they had very few excuses not to sue once ngos pressurized them to sue credit Suisse and vtb bank and uh, pro indicus the uh, intermediary from uh, lebanon as well as the individual owning it at a court in london and that whole thing was accelerated by the criminal proceedings in the United States. So in uh, at the end of uh, 2018, uh, many things that were known already um, were accelerated and were, uh, the whole ca- a case was um, brought forward by an indictment in the uh, district, in eastern district of um, New York, uh, by, the pro- by the prosecutor in the eastern district of New York, indicting one Key uh, key people from Credit Suisse and from Pro Indicus for corruption, and uh, that trial, even though the uh, Pro Indicus manager was acquitted ultimately, that trial brought many many things to light, and that was used by NGOs in Mozambique in order to pressurize the government into suing Credit Suisse and others at the High Court of London uh, for tort, because corruption evidently is. Toward it's illegal under any legal system, and uh, th- that should be a relatively clear case. Now the <laughs> complication is that once they sued Credit Suisse, Credit Suisse answered with a countersuit for interest payments, etc., and so did uh, BTP, and uh, Pro Indicus answered with a countersuit in which it revealed even more uh, corrupt acts and even more. Payments that it had made over the years that weren't known yet, neither through the U.S. Uh, uh, trial nor through any investigations that took place in Mozambique. There were several initiatives. The parliament in Mozambique tried to bring things to light. There was an audit report that uh, uh, revealed a lot of information. But, but the, the dimension, the whole dimension of the scheme, was still not known as it appears if we suppose that what Uh, Pro has brought up in the London case is correct. And uh, so that just shows that there is an enormous incentive for the government to settle things quietly and not to insist on uh, uh, those contracts being void. By the way, it's not just the government that um, has a huge incentive um, because it doesn't want... uh, more dirty laundry to appear it's also because of the imf the imf is willing to provide mozambique with new money and it badly needs so and it got some money because of COVID, but that's another thing but it is in principle willing to provide intermediary finance to mozambique but only under the condition that it restructures Those loans, even though the IMF knows that those loans are the result of corruption. So while, and this is a this is a funny thing for for bad experts, while the DSA of Mozambique would consider the three loans, the three uh, loans under question that we're talking about as contingent debt because it could be voided because it's the result of corruption. When it comes to borrowing, the IMF would consider these three loans as part of the Struck of debt, which means that in order to qualify for a loan and in order to have debt sustainability, Mozambique would quickly need to restructure these debts. So if you want to get access to IMF money quickly, you need to restructure this debt even if it's void. You can't wait for years for a suit to find, you know, for a suit in the foreign court uh, to find that this debt is void.
0: So, um, Matthias, we've taken a lot of your time, but I hope I can squeeze one more question in before we wrap up. So one of the things that I'm I'm interested in is uh, there's something flagrant about the Mozambique example, given the level of corruption, Uh, and yet we can also of view it as just one example of what seems to be a pretty common phenomenon of let's call it irregular procedures in the course of sovereign borrowing that that, um, where local officials just don't do what they're supposed to do in order to borrow money uh, in accordance with domestic law and we've seen examples or at least arguable examples in Ukraine in Venezuela and with state owned enterprise debt in Venezuela with Puerto Rico I'm I'm wondering how we should think about are they part of the same phenomenon I know you've um at least I think you've expressed the view that the the Mozambique loans should be unenforceable but um does the same principle hold do you think or should it hold for Loans incurred by a, uh, an official who doesn't have the right capacity, or loans that violate a domestic debt limit—are are these all examples of the same phenomenon? Or and are they should they all be unenforceable?
1: That's a very good question, and it would probably take uh, just uh, another talk to to settle that exhaustively or to answer that exhaustively. I do believe that uh, we should think about. Uh, The about the treatment of unconstitutional debt, as one might call it, more profoundly, I think to some extent there needs to be a corollary at the level of enforcement of the fact that sovereign immunities don't protect countries any longer against sovereign against suits uh, or against claims for uh, sovereign debt and their enforcement before courts. So you can enforce sovereign debt contracts um, before courts in many countries nowadays and um, if that is the case then these courts also have to take into account the uh, well both the international framework against corruption but also the domestic constitutional courts i think it just is a consequence of globalization you can't go it halfway and selectively review only the debt contracts you also have to take into consideration the public law so to say of the sovereign debt even though that might be a very sensitive question and many courts might not be willing to go down that road but if you're not then you know don't don't adjudicate foreign debt that's that's pure and simple the 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 short question the other uh, uh, response of course would be regulatory that we look into transparency there's the proposal that there should be public debt registries and that this transparency of borrowing should Know, provided this incentive against lenders to to um, uh, to provide funds for such doubtful schemes. But in that respect, I'm a little bit uh, hesitant to to uh, put too much hope into that because uh, I think it's rare that a bank like Credit Suisse, of, the standing of uh, Credit Suisse engages in such a sort of uh, scheme. And we've got lots of capital floating around in much more dubious, much more shadowy vehicles that could just easily replace the uh, less grayish money that uh, uh, companies like uh,
2: Credit Suisse provide. Well, thank you so much, Matthias. We, we would love to keep asking you questions uh, about this and then move into the large amount of lending that has occurred to Uh, emerging market countries and uh, the poorest countries during this pandemic and what's going to happen when inevitably these countries are left with gargantuan debt stocks. They cannot even begin to start repaying while not really having dealt with the pandemic fully, but We will hopefully uh, be able to induce you to come back to our podcast soon uh, to talk about those questions. This this really has been uh, wonderfully educational for us uh, to be able to talk to you. And we are uh, full of admiration for the work that you have been doing tirelessly uh, over the past uh, years. Uh, It's really been uh, a treat to watch and, Um, we're honored that you came on our podcast so thank you well thank you so much and your work has been an enormous source of inspiration
1: for me all the time so keep on the good work and thanks for inviting me